0: I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 75. Quick announcements. So my new book, A World Without Email, comes out tomorrow. That's Tuesday, March 2nd here in the U.S. It's released in the U.K. on March 4th. So that's good news in part because it means I don't have to keep Talking about it soon during these quick announcements. Two quick points on the book. Uh, first, if you pre order the book, you know, again, you have my appreciation. You get access to this Email Academy course. Uh, we're going to keep that open all day on March 2nd. So even if you buy the book at any point on March 2nd, you'll still be able to register your purchase and get access to that Email Academy course. I just finished actually. The final video today for the course is cool. It's about 45 minutes, spread over five videos. It really gets to the heart of the matter. Here's the big ideas. Here's how you do the changes. Here's how you adapt the changes. It's the big ideas from the book, plus some extra sort of practical knowledge, some, some additional ideas not in the book. We're probably going to, I think the way we're going to do this is these videos are really going to be, they're going to be posted unlisted, but in a shareable way. So there's a little benefit to getting access to this academy is if you're trying to convert someone over to the Cal Newport mindset, and you're not sure if they're going to read the whole book, you will probably be able to just surreptitiously send them one or two of these videos you think they'll get right to the heart of the matter. Um, so anyways, if you pre-ordered the book, even if you buy it on March 2nd, just go to uh, calnewport.com slash And as I mentioned last time, honestly, just the biggest bonus I can give you is my thanks It's just useful. For the book launch, uh, the more people who buy it in advance. Also, as I mentioned last week, I'm doing a live virtual event hosted by Politics and Pros, the bookstore here in D.C. with Jason Freed. So we're going to uh, discuss a lot of issues about email, the future of work, etc. You have to register to attend it. So go to calnewport.com/blog. I wrote a little blog post about it recently. You can get the link to register. Also. If you buy a copy of the book through Politics and Prose, and the link is there on that registration page, you will get a signed copy. So basically, Politics and Prose is keeping track of everyone who buys the book and attends the event. And then the day after the event, I'm going to go over there and sign a bunch of copies so that you can get shipped the signed copy. So if you want a signed copy, you can buy it through Politics and Prose, and it helps that bookstore. I really want to help these local bookstores. I really like that particular bookstore. All right. Enough about the book. Let's get going with today's episode. Today is an interview episode. So instead of the normal format, we will be doing an interview. In particular, I will be talking to Joshua Fields Milburn, who along with Ryan Nicodemus makes up that powerhouse duo known as The Minimalist. You probably have heard about The Minimalist. I would say that of the various people I know, these are the people that most impresses Let's say various friends or family I have. They're like, oh, you know the you know the minimalist. So <laughs> they're like the most well known people I know. Uh, I've known Joshua and Ryan since 2012. I've known them for a long time. I've I've done events with them when they were here a few years ago doing a big event at the Six and I Synagogue here in D.C. Uh, I was to fill in for Joshua, so I got to be like a less less well quaffed version of Joshua for an event. Uh, But they really kicked off this movement of minimalism that is a focus on less, but doing the things you do better, which is obviously a very influential idea for me. They really kicked off a movement around this here in the States. They got started with a blog that became really popular. They began really hustling in the sense that they went on the road all the time. They would just go to cities, city after city, and gather people in person and talk about this stuff. It's really amazing the old-fashioned way in which through person to person connection they really built up this movement. Now a lot of people know them from their first Netflix documentary, Minimalism, which was very popular as we talk about in this interview that documentary went on to be the number 1 indie release of the year before Netflix even acquired it. You know, they just they put it in the theaters and booked the booked the seats themselves and it was a, a runaway hit and that was a huge success once Netflix actually released it. They have a new Netflix documentary out now. And now this one is called Less Is Now, The Minimalist, Less Is Now. So you probably know them from these documentaries. You probably also know them perhaps from their podcast. Uh, I was out there, did the podcast a couple of years ago when I was promoting digital minimalism. I look forward to getting out there to talk about the new book as well. They're only doing it in person, so I have to find my way out to California. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to that and, and seeing them again. Uh, but they really have had a big impact on the culture. And so I was looking forward to talking to Joshua. What I, what I did in this interview, you'll see, is I didn't ask about how they got started in minimalism, mainly because in their documentaries, in their hundreds, if not thousands of speeches they've given around the country on their podcast, they've told a story so many times about their soulless corporate job and how they left and why they left and what they were going on that I thought it would be more interesting to focus on what happened next. So I met them right after they left their jobs, right after they started the minimalist.com, right after they started this new movement, this new mission. And I was curious in this interview to pull out, how did this unfold? How do we get from there to them being a three or four time repeat guest on the Today Show, to them having one of the number one documentaries on Netflix, for them getting to a point where now, you know, Josh or Ryan, they'll get recognized a dozen times a day, just walking down the street. Now, how did that How did that happen? I think it was a really interesting discussion. So You find out some about the business of creating a a brand and a movement, but as you'll also see, what I'm really impressed by is the integrity with which they have built this out. They are not working from a frame of how do we maximize growth? How do we maximize money? How do we maximize popularity? They are really working backwards from what is going to make our life meaningful. They say no to lots of things you know that they could do they're really cautious about bringing in new things they uh they ignore a lot of the conventional wisdom about what you need to do to grow an audience they're driven by values and interest they're fiercely lifestyle designed in the sense that they really think about what do we want our lives to be like and how does this fit within it they've got this really interesting philosophy of being able to walk away they don't like getting locked into things if if they don't like something let's say the podcast is not going too well they don't like it anymore They've set it up so they can walk away. Let's say they don't like doing movies anymore. That's fine. They're not committed. They can walk away. Uh, They have a very small reliance on a particular amount of money coming in. So they're not not, uh, staffed up in such a way that now the flywheel has to keep turning. It's fascinating just seeing them in addition to just a story of how do you become such an impactful brand from basically nothing. You've got this general story about how do you craft a life around values. It sounds a lot like the deep life. So I think it's a A great demonstration of the deep life in action. So I really think it's an interview that everyone will enjoy. Certainly watch the Minimalist Less Is Now documentary, watch their original Minimalism documentary. You have to be watching or listening to their podcast. It's fantastic. But hopefully you will enjoy this interview with Joshua Fields Milburn. Now here's the one thing that's going to be a little bit different. And this is this is a out of respect for Joshua. So Joshua is, as you'll see in the interview, does not like advertising. It's a philosophical stance that that I understand and has a lot of integrity. So so what I normally do obviously in my show is I'll do an ad up front right now and then I'll have an ad break later. As a uh, a show of respect to Joshua, I'm gonna do the, the all three ads right now so that I'm not interrupting a conversation with someone who has a very strong stance about advertising with advertisements. I think that would just be in bad taste. So we're going to do the, the mid-roll ads right now, and then we will have our uninterrupted conversation with Joshua Fields Milburn of The Minimalist. Let's take a brief moment to talk about my friends at Blinkist. You've heard me talk about Blinkist before. The idea is brilliant in its simplicity. You can be one of over 12 million people that has a subscription to the service, which gives you access to short summaries of the big ideas from thousands of nonfiction books. You want to know a big idea from a particular author. You want to know about a topic that's been covered. You get a summary. They call it a blink. You can get this in written form or you can get this in audio form. And in 15 minutes or less, you know the big ideas from that book. Ideas are currency right now understanding big ideas is crucial for your life. It's interesting. It can be the foundation on which you make breakthroughs in your own thinking or understanding of the world or the things you produce, and Blinkist will expose you to tons of good ideas. The way I suggest using it is when there's a topic you're interested in, real quick, do a few blinks on that topic. Now you know the lay of the land. Now you know the big ideas. Now you know, oh, if I'm going to invest a week in reading a full book, now I know what book to read. And I can read it with a background of really understanding the big ideas going on in that general space. It's a fantastic tool for people who want to be smarter about what's going on in the world. So with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to their massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, one price. So right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com deep to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash deep to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash deep. I also want to talk about the Rise bar. Now, this is a, a protein bar, right? So a a bar you can eat to get that protein to help fuel you through whatever you're working on that unlike a lot of protein bars has only a few very simple clean ingredients. It's not one of these weird concoctions of complicated chemical names that you see in a lot of leading protein bars. The Rise Bar has only three to five clean ingredients, but still gets you 15 grams of protein or more. Each of these bars has a well-balanced macrobiotic base of protein isolate, nut butter, and a natural sweetener, such as honey, or maybe coconut nectar. But the basic idea here is it goes back to what I often talk about in these ads, which is during the day, automate your eating. Don't really think about it. Just get the stuff that's clean and gives you good lasting energy, like an algorithm you just execute. And then at dinner, you can think more about crafting food of particular types that you really like. And having a good, clean source of protein that's just a few simple ingredients, none of the junk, should be a Great addition to my suggestion for this automated daytime eating. So, if you want to find out more about the Rise Bar, just go to RiseBar.com. That's R I S E B A R.com. If you use the code DEEP30, you will get a 30% discount on your first order. So, that's the word DEEP with a capital D and then the number 30, one word. Enter that at risebar.com and you will get a 30% discount on those first order of Rise Bars. So Rise Bar, keep on rising. Look, I don't want to, I don't want to be a scold, but if you have a family, you need life insurance. If you're like me, this is probably one of those things for a while where you knew you needed to do it, but it wasn't obvious how to get started. So you procrastinate but then you feel stressed about the procrastination because you know how important it is to have your family protected, God forbid, if something happens to you, I'm going to help you cure that procrastination right now by telling you about Ladder. There is no easier way to get very affordable term life insurance than Ladder. You need just a few minutes and a phone or laptop to apply. Ladder's smart algorithms then work in real time to find you instantly if you're approved. There's no hidden fees with this coverage. You cancel any time. And since it's life insurance and that's going to cost more the older you are when you get it, now is always going to be the best time to cross it off your list. Each year you wait, that life insurance is going to get more expensive. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com deep. That's L-A-D-D-E-R. Life.com slash deep. That's ladderlife.com slash deep. And now on to the interview. All right. I am happy to welcome Joshua Fields Milburn to the Deep Questions Podcast. Joshua, how are you doing? Hey Cal. Thanks for having me. Look, I'm a little bummed. Why is that? Because, uh look, I got this this book coming out. If if there was not a pandemic, I would have been able to come out to California. And I'm sure we would have had some fun, could have come on the show. And uh, now I got to just stay here in cold DC in my windowless studio. And you probably would have been out here because of your new Netflix documentary. You would have been on tour probably. So we would have been able to see each other twice. So that's that's my personal bummer of the pandemic. Yeah, we actually canceled two of our
1: speaking tours. You know, our tours are all different. I don't even know why I call it a speaking tour. Sometimes it's a podcast tour. Sometimes it's a book tour. Sometimes it's a documentary tour. It kind of just depends on what... We're doing you know we've been doing the whole minimalist thing for 10 years now we've done nine tours in those 10 years and uh, you've actually participated in several of those and and so i yeah i was definitely hoping to to get out there we had already had plans to to do this big launch with uh with less is now and um and go to a bunch of different cities but of course that's on hold for the foreseeable future we got a book coming out this summer as well, called "Love People Use Things," and we have a tentative tour scheduled uh, with, with that. But who knows um, yeah. what the summer will bring?
0: Yeah, well, well, you're you're still in a lockdown, LA, right? So, or it used to be called sunny LA, and now we have to temporarily call it lockdown LA. I guess so. <laughs> it, it it probably seems hard to imagine a time when, but it's coming. We can yeah. get back on again.
1: It, it both is and isn't. It, it is both on, in lockdown and it is also. um, well, you know, we, we're still sunny regardless of, of the lockdown status.
0: Yeah. So do you, uh, have you had people all fall trying to convince you to move to Austin? Because that's been my fall is like every writer I know, every comedian, I know everyone who's moved out there has been giving me the hard sell. I haven't heard it from them recently for obvious reasons, but have you been getting that hard sell?
1: Yeah, I've had quite a few people at that. And, and I, I would consider Nashville before I considered Austin. Um, but it's just closer to to Dayton, Ohio, which is where I grew up. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are sort of, you know, talking about leaving California and a mass exodus. I don't know that that's actually going to bear out in the statistics. And you move to California for a few reasons, one of which has to do with the weather. And so you're not going to, you're not going to get that in Austin.
0: Yeah. You know, I feel like what I've been, what I've been trained to understand from having a whole bunch of kids is like, during hard moments when you're in the moment, you feel like, well, this is going to last forever and everything has to change. And then when you leave the moment and look back, you know, with a little bit of separation, it's like, Oh, that wasn't that long. And so I have this sense that this year in the moment is feeling like the longest year ever, but let, like, let's fast forward to a few years from now, we'll look back and, and it'll seem like this compressed time. Like there's that one brief, you know, in other words, like we think everything is going to change, but like one year is probably not enough to, to disrupt everything
1: you know back in my corporate days I, I spent 12 years sort of climbing the corporate ladder going uh, through middle management and it's all a bit of a blur from age 18 to 30 so what was that 1999 to roughly you know 2010 2011 somewhere in there i it's all i couldn't tell you what happened in 2006 or how that was different from 2003 yeah i mean maybe there's something in there i could i could dig far enough back but it was it was sort of like you know, a really It was the, 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 the cutting room floor version of, of Groundhog Day. And now ever since sort of walking away from that and and embarking on this whole minimalist thing, every year has been marked by something. And, you know, 2020 is no different from that. It just happens to be, um, it happens to be a time when there's a whole lot of uncertainty, but guess what? There has been, there was a whole lot of uncertainty for the last several millennia. Uh, really, ever since the agricultural revolution, I think we've injected uncertainty into our lives. This is just a different different kind of uncertainty.
0: Yeah. If, if that's your expectation is once we get past uncertainty, then I'll be able to be happy. It's going to be a pretty unhappy existence. Um, so what I want to talk about, I mean, obviously I want to get to your new Netflix documentary, Less Is Now. What I typically do on this podcast is start with people's backstories because I'm inspired by Steve Martin's memoir born standing up where he said look everyone always skips to that part where they're playing at the copa mm-hmm. and leave the steps of how did they get from i wanted to become a performer to being on stage and so he wrote his whole biography about how he actually broke in and made his career and so i do like to tell that story with people in your case though your original origin story that is how you left the corporate life to embrace a life of minimalism is already really well known yeah you had your uh, original Netflix documentary. You've had all these tours you've done. You've had your very popular podcast and blog. You are, by the way, like one of the single most impressive people as far as my circles are concerned. More when I, when I talk <laughs> about like people I know, I can't tell you how many times uh, you and Ryan come up uh, all the time, and how pe- and people are, are not very impressed by me, but they're always impressed of you know the minimalist. So so you're that That's story Yeah. So so what I'm going to try to start with here is the part that came after that sure Uh, yeah so i mean i want i want to start with when we met so we met in 2012 yeah at the world domination summit right if i'm remembering that right that's That's right We, we were sitting
1: in these little children's chairs it was a very you and i are both rather tall and uh i remember it being in some sort of child's classroom i'm not sure why we were there but I felt like a giant and we were just sitting around. I don't even know what we were talking about. I just remember there was I felt really good leaving there like there was a a meaningful connection uh, with what we you know, what, what you were doing and what I was trying to understand. You know, I've, I've really been a seeker for these last this last decade. And, you know, you, your work in particular has has helped me on on that that seeker's journey in a way.
0: Yeah and 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 that was a cool event. I mean it was one of those things, you know, you look back in time and say, "Oh, everyone was there." So we met there. Um that's the first time I met Brene Brown. You know, she was there, Susan Kane was there, when Quiet was was just starting to I think in that classroom maybe it was like Josh Co- Josh Kaufman was teaching us how to learn things faster or or something like so it was a really it was a really interesting uh get-together. But that was 2012. Where were you in the minimal, the minimalist TM, where Mm -hmm. were you at that part? You had the blog and was that it? So, so put us into bridge the gap from you left your job. Yeah. You, I meet you. I think you already had the trademark. I think Ryan was already in the black t-shirt. Um, (laughs) there was a, there was the blog that had a very distinctive look with the the white. So what's the, what's the gap in between there? What happened?
1: Well, that distinctive look was kind of a beautiful accident. I, I couldn't even spell HTML. So When we first started the blog, it was just like cobbling things together. I couldn't make it any more complex, which ended up being a a blessing, right? But yeah, we we actually started the blog before we left the corporate world. Um, I discovered minimalism back in, in 2009, but it wasn't until a year and a half later that Ryan and I started The Minimalist. Like you said, everyone sort of knows that origin story. It has to do with a packing party and my mother dying, my marriage ending, et cetera. But Um, that was 2010 when we started the blog, sort of on the heels of, of a few revelations that Ryan had when he was dealing with his stuff, he was sorting through a lot of things and and also sorting through a, a, a pretty pernicious drug habit that, um, you know, he was sort of pacifying himself with, with opioids and, uh, in order to sort of sustain a, a, to tolerate a mediocre life. And, um. So I think it was 2011 where I ended up walking away from the corporate world, but we had already been doing the whole minimalist thing for a while. In 2012, we actually, the end of 2011, about a year into doing the whole minimalist thing, we published our first book called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. And we went out on a book tour with that. Over the course of the next year, I think we did 33 different cities. Uh, all over the US and, and Canada. We basically just got into Ryan's Toyota Corolla and you know, two people would show up, five people would show up. We, we had one event where I think a few dozen people showed up which was way beyond any expectation I ever had. And, um, and from there we, we, I don't know, I sort of came, became vehicle agnostic. You know, I always wanted to be a writer. And, and, and in my life that was you know, writing fiction. And, uh, so I wrote fiction throughout my 20s as a sort of hobby. Uh, didn 't get to write it that much. I was an aspiring writer, but i I just aspired i didn 't actually do much uh, you know I was, I was procrastinating a lot with my life and so i I found that um as I made writing a priority it was it was really fulfilling, but sometimes it wasn 't the best medium through which to communicate and so yeah, since the sort of starting of the minimalist, it started with the blog and then we had a book and Love People Use Things is going to be our fourth book over the course of 10 years. Um, and and so we found all these different vehicles. Eventually, there was the podcast, which is often what we're most known for now, either that or or either one of our Netflix documentaries. So I became vehicle agnostic. It was like, okay, what is the best medium through which to communicate the thing that I'm trying to communicate? And also, what's what's the best vehicle for me to understand better? And so it's been a 10-year a, a journey of, of really understanding, if, if nothing else. I mean, in 2012, shortly after you and I met, Ryan and I moved out to Montana to work on our second book called Everything That Remains. It was sort of this memoir of these two suit and tie corporate guys who became minimalists and eventually the minimalists. And, and uh, we ended up staying in Montana for about five years. And it was beautiful, but the winters were, were brutal. And we eventually came out here to Los Angeles because this is where people go to tell stories.
0: Yeah. What was the, what was the plan in 2011? So just even from a pay the bills perspective was, was the play, like, let's live off savings at first and then we'll, we'll feel out, we'll feel out the market.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know that there's ever been an actual plan. Um, There still isn't like, I don't have a, you know, a five-year plan, 10-year plan. I tend to look at each year as here's one creative project I want to work on this year. And so, you know, whether it's a a film or a book, and and sometimes it bleeds over into the next year, but I tend to look at it one year at a time. And initially, no, I didn't have any savings. In fact, I still had a little bit of debt. So when I realized it was time to leave the corporate world, I I stayed for an extra two years longer than I would have liked. And, uh, and in doing that, the only reason I did that was to pay off debt. Now I did a bunch of really radical things to, to make sure that I got out of debt because I was so, I, I made really good money in the corporate world. I made a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in Dayton, Ohio, but I was broke. I was I was worse than broke. I had massive amounts of debt. If you count my mortgage, I had half a million dollars worth of debt, and you know a ton of credit card debt. Fourteen credit cards. You know everything from like Banana Republic and Macy's to Diners Club and Discover and Mastercard. It's no coincidence they call it a Mastercard. And, and I was I was slave to the lender, right? And I I I was overwhelmed. Working really hard to attain status i guess success achievement, you know, whatever we we consider to be the American dream, you know, I think success doesn't really exist anymore you know it it was um, it was sort of faux success, it was everyone else's idea of success, and the pursuit of happiness is kind of the problem right and and, and so um no i didn't when I walked away from the corporate world the thing that was critical for me is I had reduced my bills so far down that I could live on a barista salary. And so people thought I was insane when I walked away from the corporate world. I was the youngest director in our company's 140 year history. I managed 150 retail stores and uh, had all of these sort of trappings and, and of, of ostensible success. Right. And I looked successful. A big house in the exurbs, three luxury cars, um, you know, more toilets than people in my house and, and sort of, uh, all of the, the, the accoutrements of, of success. And, and yet, man, I was, I was living paycheck to paycheck. I made really good money, but spent even better money. And so, no, I, I, when I walked away, I still had, um, about, about two years left to, to pay off the rest of that debt. But I moved into a really small, uh, apartment. It was like 500 bucks a month. And, and, uh, Uh, Had virtually no bills. I I got rid of home internet. I got rid of, you know. I I never ate out. I I I just I got myself down to what was, uh, you know. We're we're talking about this now during the pandemic, right? Like, what is essential? We hear these terms: essential worker, essential travels. Well, that's the question Ryan and I have been grappling with over the last decade. What is essential? And and you know, I believe that everything that we own. You know, minimalism sort of starts with the stuff but I believe everything that we own can fit into one of three piles. We call it the no junk rule. Uh, It's either essential, non-essential, or junk. Well, the essentials are, I think, pretty much the same for all of us, right? Food, shelter, clothing, vocation, education, transportation. And then you have non-essentials. These vary widely by the individual. These are things we don't actually need need. Like I have a couch at home. I don't need a couch. I could live without it, right? But it does add value to my life. Same with my kitchen table, same with my dresser, whatever. Uh, I I have some non-essentials. Unfortunately, most of the things we own are junk. These are things that masquerade as value-adding, but they actually get in the way of what adds value to our lives. You you talk about this acutely with, with, with you know, technology and technological distractions. Quite often, Facebook can seem like it's one of those things that adds value. And it may on some level, but it might actually be junk and it might be getting in the way of you know, creating something worthwhile. And, and I think that is true with our stuff. I also think it's true in all other areas of our life. And so for me, with my bills, I was like, okay, if I'm really serious about wanting to not be tethered to this lifestyle anymore, not to be anchored by, by everyone else's expectations, then I have to figure out a way that I can afford to, to walk away because I couldn't afford it before. And and I don't know how terrifying that is. I remember the first time I actually went to, to leave my job, my, my boss told me, no, like he said that I couldn't, Nope. <laughs> and and well, at first, in my mind, I was like, oh, that's the most terrifying thing ever. And I believed him for a second because of the way that he said it. And I was like, oh, no, I didn't realize that someone could turn me down when I'm quitting my job. And, uh, you know, eventually we sort of you know, we navigated those waters and, and we set forth a plan to have a, a healthy transition to someone else because it was just no longer and um, no longer aligned with the person
0: I wanted to be. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with that period of internet history, so the period leading up to that departure for you, uh, they don't know that there was this strong online minimalism community. Yes. And it was actually one of the stronger communities within the first waves of blogs, right? So you had Leo Babuda, you had Joshua Becker, you had Courtney Carver. Uh, minimalism was one of these big ideas. I remember finding it very influential as a, a grad student at MIT. I still have memories of being in the back of the distributed algorithms graduate seminar. I was TAing and, and reading about Leo leaving his job yeah. because his Zinda had generated just enough money that he could pay off his debt and, and leave cheaply. And Remember, that was very influential. These ideas were very, uh, very influential. So I'm sure you were, you were in that milieu. But also what you guys did was a little bit different. And so I'm curious about how you thought about your place in that world when you started the minimalist.com and were thinking about leaving because like, what I noticed is that the existing blogs were very in the old school of here's like a person and I'm kind of bearing my life and it's, it's a homebrewed type look like, you know, here's me, let me talk about what's going on, uh, kind of cluttered type thing. And you guys had a, a I don't know, like a visual brand. I mean, it it was the first thing I saw when I started reading you guys that seemed um, visually aspirational. So there was like a split, right? It wasn't like a cluttered sort of here's my, I mean, Leo had a had a very nice sort of minimalist blog, but you guys had like this black and white, you dressed in a certain way, and it, for whatever reason, made it really effective. Is, so you're saying, is that all accidental or what? how did you guys think about it when you were looking at that existing online world and saying, we want to enter it?
1: Yeah, I don't know that it was accidental. I think, thankfully, I was I was somewhat naive to the size of how many other minimalists were out there. I actually was familiar with the three you mentioned: Courtney, Leo, and uh, Joshua and Kim Becker, he and his wife. Um, and and then there was also Colin Wright, who was actually the first person who introduced me to yeah. minimalism. And and, and well, I I liked all of their stories. I found them fascinating. I I also knew that my life and and also Ryan's life, you know, I've known Ryan since we were fat little fifth graders. And so I knew that our our, our lives were were different from theirs. And so we brought a few things different, a few different things to the table. Uh, One is I I do have a a serious appreciation for aesthetics. So I'm a fan of minimalism, but before I was a fan of minimalism as a lifestyle, I was an actual fan of minimalism in terms of like architecture and even interior design, you know, someone Mm -hmm. like. John Paulson, the architect, or, or uh, Axel Vavort, uh, who is an interior designer, but also other types of minimalism. You know, minimalist writers from like the '80s, Brett Easton Ellis and Laurie Moore or Raymond sure. Carver, a- and I-, I found a lot of value in in minimalism in the sense that the bones of the thing are the beauty, right? And so if you strip something down to its essence, that's where the real beauty comes out, and so. Uh, minimalist art, you know, uh, Agnes Martin, for example, her paintings are visually stunning to me and, and they evoke some sort of visceral feeling that I wouldn't get from a, personally wouldn't get from a Jackson Pollock painting. Not that one is better than the other or one is right or wrong. It, it It's more of a preference thing. And so I think I've been drawn to minimalism uh, in terms of aesthetics for a long time. And I, I agree with you. I think that played a significant role in... And everything we were we were doing early on but but also uh, I wanted to make sure it wasn't overly simplistic. you know our friend Leo, um, his website to me is is aggressively minimalist breathe and, that's what I remember was, yeah yeah
0: breathe, <laughs> <period>. yeah <laughs>
1: yeah I, I do remember that, and so um, i I really like that, but it it wasn't appropriate for me, and so the question is like, well what is the most appropriate thing and, and I, I tend to look at things from the the not from my perspective, but if we publish something, it's more from a a a reader's or a listener's perspective. Uh, what would I have wanted ten years ago? You know, the the book that we have coming out uh, this summer. Love people use things like I, I look at that now. I'm, I'm just finishing up the eighth draft of that thing, and you know, it's been done for a year, but I keep going back to it because the question is, like, what would I have wanted to read when I was, you know, I'm 39 now? What would I have wanted to read when I was 29? years old or even 35 years old what um what have i learned and how can i best communicate that to someone so i i don't think that minimalism is necessarily for everyone i think it's it's for anyone who is discontented by the status quo but also when i saw leo and courtney and everyone else I saw recipes and instead of trying to recreate the recipe, it was like, Oh, I'll take an ingredient from that recipe, take an ingredient from that recipe, take one here. And then let's look at Brady Stanellas, Let's look, let's look at John Paulson. Let's look at all these different minimalists, right. And, and create our own recipe recipe for simple living or intentional living.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, the threads I throw into your story that, uh, You don't often mention uh, because you're modest, but, but it often seems to me looking at what you did once uh, you and Ryan did, once the minimalist got started is part of the explanation for how you ended up so successful in the world of business at the young age, you know, doing what you're doing before you left for minimalism. It wasn't just the attraction of the consumer's lifestyle. There's these latent talents that I think come through because when I, when I looked at what you guys did, you're the innovators, I would say of that space. So for example, with your first book, I'm assuming you did with that book. I, I think the, the first book tour I connected with you guys was probably the everything that remains tour when you were at politics and prose and I introduced you, but I'm assuming you had the same model for the first book. You had this idea of like, let's get a book out. yeah. And I, I think you might've self-published it, but you had this idea of let's do this tour. Yeah. Like let's go places. We'll do this tour. And then when we do the tour, we're going to do local press at every location. Mm, you know, yeah. there's this instinct in there, uh, that like, I don't have that instinct. Leo didn't have that instinct. Like it, it's, I, I don't know where these ideas come from, but I think this was anyways, where did that come from? Like when you decide like, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to get in the Corolla, or we're going to go to 30 States or whatever it was <sighs> yeah, and get local press in every place and talk to people in every place. Like we are going to make this movement we're doing. We're going to will it into something that exists.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it did. It, you're right. It, it came from when we were in the corporate world, I was doing things that were that f- felt inauthentic to me. At least they felt inauthentic once I started to get clarity around what my values were. Right. But uh, in in a way, I look at the business side of creating as a piece of creating. I think once upon a time, there there was a time where an author would write a book and then someone edits it and someone does the layout and the and um Yeah, there's proofreaders and then there's a marketing team and all all this, but like, I've, I I hate waiting around for someone else's permission. Right. And, and so, yeah, initially that first book, minimalism, live a meaningful life. We did self-publish it, but then we actually, when we republished it, I think it was in 2015, we republished it. We had formed a, a publishing company by then. So in 2013, uh, we, and, and our friend Colin Wright, we had learned a lot about publishing. In fact, Colin had published something like 30 books on his own mm. and he's a really talented writer and we had learned a lot. And so we started our own publishing company called Asymmetrical Press. And at one <laughs> point, yeah, we had like, uh, 20 interns and, and you know, Ryan was managing all of the interns. He's the people person of the group. And, and, you know, we'd have you know someone who d- did design and layout. We had someone who did PR and, and, um, so we we had, and we had, uh, I think we've published the work of nine different authors, uh, not counting the, the founders, six other authors. So uh, and whenever we went to them, we made sure we didn't own their art. Like I didn't want to own anything that they were doing, but it, I also let them know, like, hey, we're going to fail together. We want to help you fail better because that's what's going to happen here. You're probably not going to have some giant New York Times bestseller with this thing, but we're going to... We're going to learn how to to do this. And, and every time we screw up, we're going to figure that out. You know, people can call it iteration or whatever other business term there is. But to me, it felt. Well, it not felt it was much more authentic, right? It was like I, there, I wanted a level of sincerity in, in what we were doing because I, it felt so insincere to be. You know, we worked in telecom, so selling cell phones to five year olds you know, convincing their parents that they needed one, the convincing thing just never felt great. And so Ryan and I have not been in the convincing business. And I think in many ways, we're not in the advice business either. We're not proselytizing. I don't want to convert anyone to minimalism. I don't think this is something you must do or should do. I don't think I'm better than you because I'm a minimalist and you're not. It, it, it It never occurred to me that that this was the way to be. It was, um, these were things that I had a deep desire to do. You know, Ryan and I were the minimalists because it was like, hey, when you get a group of more than one person together, you know, like a band, you name them something, right? And so a lot of what we did, music is very much a, a, an inspiration in, in what we have done. Uh, you know, i am my first novel I wrote back in my twenties was about a, a sort of failing singer songwriter. And, and so we sort of took the lessons from music. And some of our favorite musicians, they were going around touring, you know, my friend, Matt Carney or, or, or uh, Griffin house, they would tour 300 tour stops a year. And while I never aspired to do that, I, I saw that, Oh, here's one way they really get this, their music out there and what do you do when you tour well you hit up the local media now there have been some beautiful byproducts of that as well the 2014 tour that you mentioned everything that remains that was our biggest tour in terms of number of cities we did 100 cities eight countries 119 events and yeah we did uh, over 400 interviews that year now some of it you know you see some of it in our first uh, documentary minimalism uh that you know we'd show up at 520 AM to the AM radio station in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And you know that maybe eight people were listening to that, but that wasn't the, the, the point. The point was that we were, we, we had the opportunity to share something that we felt really passionate about. We had cultivated a passion as you would say. And, and also it was wonderful practice. So when the today show came knocking and, Uh, you know, we've done today's show five, six, seven times at this point, or good morning America or any of these other places, but we had the repetition in before all of that. And so, yeah, going out there and and giving these talks has been a beautiful way for us to better understand what resonates with people and really better understand people. The, in in the new book, in, in fact, um, we, you know, we've all, we collect a bunch of stories from different people who have you know, like, uh, had a dumpster fire in their house and what that meant for them or you know, just different stories that we've picked up on the road and also figuring out the things that I thought were so profound and would resonate, some grand metaphor about channel surfing or something. Like, it was just crickets, right? But then when Ryan would start talking about his packing party we thought that was a throwaway idea. Like who wants to talk about moving their stuff, right? How stupid is that? No, no, no. That thing became uh, the the thing that everyone fixated on because it's such a visual representation. And so when you get out there, you really understand, you get to understand people's perspectives.
0: Right. So what you were learning on the road within Come back and influence what you wrote about and what you did, which would influence. And so, you, basically, you are putting in the road hours, like a band would put in, or, or a professional comedian would put in. That's so crucial to the honing your point of view. And probably a lot of us don't.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think the same is true with writing, right? I mean, writing is one of those rare professions where yeah, we, we what do we say? We have brick we we, we have a, we have a writer's block, right? Yeah, and like what a, what a strange excuse. Other yeah. crea- creators don't have that. When I go to a, a, a nurse, I've never heard a nurse say she has, um, nurses block or a bricklayer say she has bricklayers bl- block, right? Like that's, the, I would look at that person and just sort of blink and not know what to say. But we, we have this excuse of writer's block. Well, no, you just, if you're a bricklayer, you show up and you lay bricks. My, my brother, he manufactures cabinets. And uh, he just shows up and he builds cabinets every day. He doesn't have cabinet makers block. And so I think the same was true with writing. There's a really talented fiction author. His name's Donald Ray Pollock. He uh, wrote The Devil All the Time. And um, I I was fortunate enough to have lunch with him. He lives in Chillicothe, Ohio. And I drove out to Chillicothe from Dayton. And he, he told me four words. I was in my late 20s at the time. Four words that changed my life. Sit in the chair. And, and and it made me realize like, oh, yeah, 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 like that's that's the only thing you actually have to do. Before, I was so worried about productivity and word count and page count. No, 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 no. Like the only count that matters is can I sit in the chair for at least an hour a day? And soon an hour turn, turns into two or three hours. And and it's the the repetitions. Otherwise, yeah, you can aspire to
0: be a writer,
1: but, you know, that, yeah, it's not well, going to do
0: much. My theory on writer's block is that the problem with writing is that you occasionally get a flow state, right? And it's like, Oh, this is great. I love it. I'm locked in and the words are flowing and you get it just every once in a while, which gives you the taste. And then you can, then you can get the belief like, well, it should always feel like that. Like if Mm -hmm. I don't feel really jazzed up and ready to write and feel really good about it, then, then there's a problem or I'm blocked or I shouldn't really do it. Whereas if you're building cabinets, you probably don't fall into the state where you're like, yeah, everything's flowing. It's like, yeah, it's work. I'm used to the work. Or if you're laying bricks, you're not going to fall into a, a sort of a flow state where you feel like the muses are, are singing to you. So it's almost like we are, we're tortured by the occasional grace that we get a feel in writing because it's easy to hope or to extrapolate and say, Oh, that's what, that's what it should always feel like. But I think in nonfiction writing, we underestimate the importance of what you're talking about. I do this virtually. I mean, my whole book writing career is based on the fact that I'm blog writing all the time. Mm. Everything I ever end up being in a book is going to have been talked about for a long time in articles. And I would say when podcasting came along and I started getting more involved in podcasting, that also became important because I would I was a a uh, year-round podcast guest because I'd written a couple books that were sort of evergreen, right? That had long tales, like deep work and so good. And I would just unrelated the the book. I was always doing podcast. Yeah. You, Got ideas. And so I'd find myself uh, working out material, being really critical. And so, you know, it seems like you and Ryan had something similar going on, but when was the point? You know, one of the things that was good about your early website is that it was very well designed to, it, it gave off the the look of this is a big deal. I, like very early on, you had the as seen on NPR and whatever. And I remember being like, uh, even before I met you, like, okay, <laughs> these guys are really well known. It's sort of a big deal. What was the turning point in your story where you you started feeling that? Like, what, is, what, what was it when you and Ryan were like, wait, this is a bigger thing?
1: Yeah, I wanted to be careful that it wasn't like... Those things can be egoic pursuits, right? And there's nothing wrong or bad about the ego. So I'll just put that out there. Um, but yeah, it also does establish some sort of um, legitimacy to an outside viewer, right? And without beating people over the head with it, you know, if you go to our website now, it'll probably say something you know at the top in a short box that says, you know, uh, as featured on you know, the New York Times and the New Yorker or whatever, right? It, it's, um, it, it's there, but it doesn't have to be in, in your face because it isn't, it isn't a, a true marker of, of quality. That's a, a marker, a marker of, um, I don't know, uh, PR aptitude, I suppose, Um, when, when did, you and by the way, many of those, you know, this, many of those things don't really get you much. Right. I mean, you can do, uh, you can do the today show on Christmas day and supposedly 9 million people tune in. I know because I've done it, but then, you know, what, 2000 people come to the website from that. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, oh, it's because it's sort of just on in the background, like a fireplace. It's not, it's not as deep as if you were to be on a podcast with Cal Newport, or if you uh, get featured on Leo Babelta's blog. And in fact, I I think the the first big thing that happened to us in the eyes of your everyday person is out of nowhere, uh, CBS this morning called and they flew us out to New York. This is back in 2011, I think. And um, how they were attracted to us, I'm not sure. It may have been from... uh, Leo Babalta's website. He he was gracious enough to to share an essay I wrote called "A Day in the Life of a Minimalist," and that thing you know went viral for the time. It wasn't an actual viral thing. It was like you know thousands of people saw it, so it wasn't. I've never had anything you know truly go viral. I don't think, and um, not that it's bad. Uh, it's just not my aim. And so yeah, there there was a moment around. Yeah, I, Actually, I can tell you the exact moment where I knew personally. It was uh, December of 2012. So about two years after we had started the website, we were on a tour. We did a 10-city ho- uh, uh, holiday tour. It was called the Holiday Happiness Tour. And we just went to 10 cities. And we didn't charge any money. We didn't have a new book out. We just went to 10 cities and did 10 different events and we did media in each city when we were there, uh, driving around in Ryan's Toyota Corolla and in, in Toronto, we showed up to the venue. We had, we had this working space that agreed to let us use their space and it held maybe 60 or 70 people, which was way bigger than we had needed up to that point. So we show up and the gal who was organizing the event for us, she, um, she like, ushers us over because when we pull up there's another event that was going on there at the same time and it was upstairs in that same venue that co-working space and i i, I panicked because i was like how are we going to get into this venue there's so many people here and i talked to the gal about it, she's like you idiot they're all here for you and i must have been a thousand people there it was way more people than we could you know fit into a room and somehow we got the co-working space to let us use their entire, you know, top floor. And, and we, we made it work. It was, I'm sure we, we broke every fire code violation in the city. But um, it, it just sort of, our message spread the most in, in Canada before it even spread in, in the United States. And it was some media outlets picked that up. And I think it was at a time when was, that minimalism was really starting to resonate with people because it was post-crash. Right, the two thousand eight crash, and people were beginning to question their so-called success and achievement and their desire for so-called success and achievements and trophies and our our society that's that's usually marked by the accumulation of of stuff, and people were beginning to to question that because you know we they were miserable and they kept chasing happiness, not realizing like, well, it's the chase of happiness that is actually making me miserable in the first place but that is right. that, that's really the first time that that I, I recognized like oh oh this is this is way bigger than we ever intended
0: and so at that point this would have been blog readers though many of whom maybe had been pushed to your blog because of some press had already happened but at this point this was just a concentration because that was the main media outlet you had in this sort of 2012 it would have been your blog basically so yeah, this yeah that where- was it yeah. So those thousand people that they had just they had known your blog and they felt a real connection with what was going on. And so when they just heard, okay, you guys were gonna be in town, mm-hmm. they gathered. Yeah. That's exciting. So then you you knew you were on to something. When you yeah, went but, but to, I was
1: ignorant, I, I, because we didn't have like an email list even like we we had like a little feed burner thing, but like we didn't have, you know, a an email. so it's not like we were like reminding people to come to our events like we just put it up on our events page on the website and people showed up it's also the reason you know that that very first tour we did back in 2011 and 2012 it was yeah you know, there were times when two people literally two people showed up right? there were two cities salt lake city and, and knoxville where two people showed up and and most people would see that as a defeat but like ryan and i were like oh my god like there are people showing up in Knoxville, Tennessee, who know who we are. How crazy is that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, b- by the way, I think it's it's an interesting data point for those who today say, like, look, without Twitter, without Twitter, I can't. I don't. I won't have a uh, the ability to let you know. I need to tell people on Twitter that I have events. Right. So like comedians, <laughs> a lot too. but you know, you look at this data point and say, okay, you were doing none of that. I mean, you weren't on Twitter. I, I assume you just would sort of post on your blog. My big memory is like, here's the tour. Like we, we have, we have these uh, sites, but yeah, you know, it seemed like the people who are going to come are going to come. Yeah. It was, there's like the content connecting people liked you. They were, they were invested in you. They saw you were coming and they wanted to come and whether they got 19 tweets about it or just saw it once on your blog is, This is just an aside. I use every aside I can to make a sort of backhanded slight at Twitter. So, you know, me, (laughs) I think it's an interesting data point, right? That um, it's a counterfactual world where you're trying to do a tour and have events, but Twitter doesn't exist.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've had a healthy sort of detachment from, I'd like to say non-attachment, but I don't think that's true. A healthy detachment from social media for the most part Um, uh, since the, beginning, I used it sort of as a voyeur. So I had Twitter back then. I I don't want to pretend like I did. And I still do. I still have a Twitter account, but I don't have social media apps on my phone. You know, I learned that from you. And I, I, I I don't know. I I just don't. We have a, a healthy distance between us and those broadcast mediums. And so in many ways, they're an extension of the blog, but it's easy also to get caught up in the Bermuda Triangle of tiktok instagram facebook whatever um yeah. but but yeah I, I do think that um you know if you uh, the metaphor i like to think of is if you're juicing you know something like uh, let's say you're juicing um uh, an orange orange juice and so you put a bunch of oranges into a juicer and then at the end you have juice right now you could run that pulp back through and get another three to ten percent more juice possibly i don't know but th- is it really worth the squeeze, right? And and I don't think it is. And so, yeah, like you said, the people who are going to show up are going to show up. Could we have had more people if we if we really had the targeting marketing efforts and and you know A B split tested the emails and all these? Yeah, we could. But like, oh my God, that sounds like a nightmare, man. Who wants to do that?
0: Yeah, yeah uh, I don't know. There's there's a lot of people online taking courses that probably probably do. But you, your model has been one that's been. Uh, an inspiration to me, like I point to you and Ryan, right? Because we're, we're we're similar in this sense, right? We we like to create thoughtful content about stuff we're interested in. We try to live what we write about, and we're not much interested in stuff that's not that, right? So you have your podcast, um you do your document, you write books and do your documentaries. I just write books. We write articles sometimes for the blog. Mm-hmm. I'm not that interested in, you know, clubhousey, my TikTok. I know you guys aren't that interested in that either. And it seems to work out. And I don't know if long-term it's probably better, who knows, but like long-term, especially if you write about the things you write about, write about the things I write about actually living, what you talk about year after year probably does more good in terms of impact anyways, then as you said, getting that 10% extra juice, you know, out of the pulp today,
1: when
0: yeah, did you... I, yeah oh go on yeah i just i i want to
1: yeah. helping other people is great and, and uh it sounds really virtuous or whatever but ultimately like what i want to do is is illuminate the truth and if that helps people great if it doesn't help people you know then too bad i it's it's really not it's up to the receiver to determine the reception and and so you know I think Ryan and I, what we've done is we've determined what is enough for us. And by the way, enough changes in time. I think really that's what you could call minimalism Enoughism, because it's identifying what is enough for me or maybe another way to say it is what is appropriate for me. I think in our culture, we often talk about like we think about more always. It's always about more, more money, more followers, more status, more success, more cars, more square footage, more, more, more. We rarely stop to consider less and and almost always enough is, unco- is uncovered by reducing, especially in, in our world, our fire hose world. That's reducing distractions. That's reducing technology. It's reducing the number of things. It's often reducing the number of relationships, especially the toxic relationships. It's certainly reducing our obligations. And uh, now it doesn't mean becoming a Ascetic or a Luddite, right? In, in your case, you're not a Luddite, but uh, people might often mistake us as ascetics or or Luddites because we're really intentional and we don't we don't subscribe to all of society. In fact, I think society is one of the greatest problems that we have, right? Because it's it's everyone else's beliefs and opinions that are thrust upon me. Their expectations that are thrust upon me and you. And it's not to say that. I mean, I think our tools are only as good or as bad as the person using them. Unfortunately, when it comes to to social media apps, there are high-paid demographers and statisticians and engineers who are, I mean, everyone already knows this. I'm, I'm just uh, trying to echo it a bit here. But everyone knows that there's thousands of people behind there trying to aggregate your eyeballs onto their product or service in order to sell you products or services. I think advertising is the most pernicious it's it's the most pernicious thing going on in our in our lives right now there's a reason that ryan and i start with every podcast with this episode of the minimalist is brought to you by nobody because advertisements suck it's not because i'm allergic to money i'm not i i'm totally fine with money. i think money's an amplifier if i'm making poor decisions it's going to make me far worse off if if my habits are relatively good i say that in quotes um then you know it's going to. If I'm already kind, it's going to allow me to contribute more. And so money is not evil. It's not the the root of all evil, as as they say. But I think what advertising has done today's advertising model is it has it has propped up this whole generation of influencers. Right now, I've never been influenced by an influencer. What is an influencer? Right? I think the the more honest term is it's an infomercial host. That's all an influencer is. They're on their Instagram or TikTok or whatever, hawking products or services in order to to make money, and it's not something that they they necessarily get value from. And and so, I, don't know, I think it's I think it's quite dangerous. I think it changes our political landscape quite a bit, right? I think that uh, it promotes outrage. I think it indoctrinates our kids through advertisements. You know, I, I see kids now, you know, my daughter, will be eight this year and, and, you know, I, kids she hangs out with sometimes they'll say, you know, make sure you like, and subscribe at the end of a conversation. Yeah. And it's like, well, what, what? that's what it's come to. Right. And I, I, and I run the risk of sounding like the, you know, the old guy in the room who is, you know, humbugging everything, But I think it really, these advertisements more than anything are one of the greatest problems we have. They disturb the peace. They make us feel inadequate. They encourage people to go into debt to buy things that they don't need. And so, uh, man, I I think that we're so driven, the, the, as you, the word you use is content. I try to avoid that word, but the, the, we, we create content in order to really get more eyeballs onto our. It incentivizes us to get more eyeballs onto our product. So I don't have that incentive, and so I don't care if we have ten million or thirty million people. Like it doesn't, because width does not is not a measurement
0: of depth. Yeah, well, I mean, I think just a good a good time to to thank our sponsor on it performance enhancing drug. I'm joking. <laughs> the only performance enhancing drug that Joshua Fields Millburn trusts to get that minimalist zeal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, we've had so many people offer us
1: sponsorships and, and it, it'd be easy. I mean, with the number of listeners we have, I'd make a million dollars a year As and, and okay, like uh, that sounds wonderful. I want a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars now. I want a million dollars, but I don't want it enough. I don't have a deep desire for a million dollars so much so that I'm willing to sacrifice my, my own values in order to get
0: it. What was, I mean, speaking of all of this, what was the, when looking at it through a minimalist frame, what was the decision process you and Ryan went through when you decided to do a podcast? Because I'm assuming it wasn't, you like me would not be the type of person who would just say, oh, here's this new thing. Let's just do it. No. Right? It's another thing.
1: Well, actually, and, let me, can I ask you about that? I, I will answer your question, I promise. But, you know, uh, new new technologies pop up all the time. I don't know you've written about this, but since you've written about it, yeah. uh something like clubhouse pops up. Right. And I I heard you take a a slight shot at clubhouse a moment ago and I haven't
0: know what it is to be honest.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, it's real time podcasting really it's old time party lines, but on the internet, that's all it really is. And um, you know, I haven't started using it yet. I mean, I I've I've set up an account, but like, I haven't used it. And the question is um, will this, is this an appropriate use of my time? Right. And, and if so, is it the most appropriate use of my time? Can I afford this? I think it was Seth Godin who said, if, um, we spent, if we spent, um, if we spent our money, like we spent our time, we'd all be bankrupt. Right. And I, I feel that, you know, of course I worry about jumping down that, that path with something like clubhouse and I could see how it could be a gigantic time suck, but, there are times where does it does it not make sense to test something out for a period of time to see whether or not you're going to get immense value from it?
0: Yeah, I think it could be useful. I think it could be useful. To, I mean, I worry about what I worry about is committed obligation, right? So, so testing something where it's let me go to a clubhouse tonight or whatever if that's how it works, like fine, like there's no you're no committed obligation. Mm-hmm. But like podcasting, I was very slow to. Because there's no, it's not something you do one episode of, right? Like you feel like there's going to be some sort of commitment. You're going to have to see it through for a while. And so, so I was slower to it. So I think data is good. Personally generated data. I've looked into this thing. Now it could be actual personal exposure or in some cases not like I think with a lot of social media, services, I studied them pretty carefully because I was writing about them and looking into them. I didn't actually try them myself, but it was basically the same thing. Right. Yeah. like Let me really understand Twitter. And, and maybe I didn't actually use Twitter, but again, uh, you know, it's not rocket science. I think you can kind of watch enough authors and feel like, OK, I see what's going on here. I see what the dynamic is. I see I see the pros and cons. So I'm generally in favor of of data gathering and then making a careful decision. Podcasting seems like it's a high overhead. And so I know. So you and Ryan, like me, are minimalist in terms of let's be careful about what we get obligated to do. Or if we do something, let it be like a short term thing. Let's do a tour. It might be really hard, but it's, it's like, let's try and it'll be done. Yeah. How did yeah, you think i mean, you worried about it or, or was it really experimental? Like, let's just whatever. Let's just put some things up.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was it was it was both. It was an understanding that this is a commitment if we're going to put out an episode every week. And we actually do two episodes every week. We do a minimal episode and a maximal episode. So we have our podcast is is listener supported. And so we have a a a public episode that's absolutely free, and then we have a a private podcast episode that allows us to put our hair down a little bit and talk about things we wouldn't usually talk about in public. So it's kind of a it's when a stand up comic goes and tests out some some crowd work and or, or some sort of new bits in front of a audience, a small you know club audience of. 50 to 100 to in our case you know six or seven thousand people it's a small group of people relative to the the public offering and we are able to sort of test out some things it's it's a this weird space where it's sort of semi-public and semi-private at the same time we call it the minimalist private podcast but obviously it's public to that small group of people but yeah i think we went into it knowing that i can walk away from anything at any time i think that's the greatest superpower. The minimalism provides us is the ability to walk away from anything. You, you yeah. Remember the movie heat? Yes. So Pacino. Uh, yeah, Pacino De Niro, De Niro's character, Neil McCauley. he has a line in there. He says, never bring anything into your life. You're not prepared to walk away from thir- from, you're not prepared to walk away from in 30 seconds flat. Yeah. And, and well, I've sort of mapped that onto my own life. Now I'm nothing like Neil Macaulay. He's the the bad guy in the movie, but I am, I found immense value in that. And I, I include that even in the more difficult to talk about things like relationships, for example, maybe I I can't walk away from my marriage in 30 seconds flat, but Bex, my wife and and I, um, she and I, we have conversations all the time about, do you still want to be in this? I I don't believe until death do us part and, and, and all of those cliches. Right. I, I believe that if we want the, if we want, this thing to thrive, then we want to show up deliberately and we want to be able to continue showing up. I think obligation is awful, period. I, I don't want to be obligated to anything. It's the reason that gift giving is absolutely worse on December 25th. Because if I get you some on December, December 25th, there's an obligation. It's an obligatory gift. But if I you that same uh, gift on March 13th and you're like, why, why did you give this to me? Oh, because I thought it would add value to you. All of a sudden it's a surprise and it's not, it's not birthed out of obligation. And I think the same is true with anything. If we're willing to walk away from it and I'm willing to walk away from anything, if it's, even if it's writing, which is the thing that I'm absolutely most passionate about I get up and do it every morning. Uh, But I would be willing to walk away from that if it was no
0: longer adding value to my life. I don't want to feel obligated to, to any of it. So was it, was it stressful for you? It was a little bit for me, but when you, you have a nice studio, I've been to it. You have a, a. A very good producer. You have, you have a good video. You have a multi-camera video setup. You have multi-mic setup. Well-lit studio. There's some some obligation there, right? Was that stressful? When when I, I I don't know how early you jumped into the well-produced space, which I think was the right move. But how early did you did that? And was that was that stressful? Because now you're thinking, okay, now we're going to invest. We're going to yeah. invest
1: into this. We have to, we have to identify what well-produced is, but I think our our podcast has been well-produced since episode number one, but it didn't start in a nice studio space. It started in what I would call a closet. They called it a conference room, but it was really a closet at the university of Montana. They let us use this little closet. It may have been, I don't know, 60 square feet. It was tiny. And the three of us barely fit in. There was me and Ryan and our uh, producer podcast, Sean, he, um, and he had some recording experience already. He had already worked with us for a while. He does our operations and so he's sort of the the factotum for the minimalist everything. He wears many hats. And um he he already had some experience recording in the past. He had gone to he had worked for a radio station back in Dayton. And so when we we decided to do it, we're like okay, we're going to do audio only thing. We want it to sound as good as any radio show. That was our yeah. minimum commitment, but there was no video. It didn't yeah. have to be in a beautiful studio space. We just needed to find somewhere where we could record. And so, really, that it, it sounded great from episode one. It continues to sound better. I, I think he has the best sounding audio of any podcast out there. It's not because of me. It's because um, he continues to refine the the audio on that. Yeah, and we were, I think, maybe a hundred and. Uh, Forty episodes in before we added a a video component, and so it was already going relatively well. And we decided, hey, the people obviously find value in some of the video stuff we're doing, especially the documentaries that we have on Netflix. That w- why not try this as a video component? But even then, in fact, right after this call, I'm meeting with Jordan, our filmmaker, and and asking, I'm going to ask him a question. Hey, do we continue doing? The, the video for the podcast, because it's not a must. I don't have to keep doing anything. I, I'm not tethered to, to any sort of obligation there. And so does it make sense to continue to do the video portion of the podcast? If so, great.
0: Why? And if not great as well, let's move yeah. on. I, I like that mindset. I mean, is right now, is that the, the economic engine of the empire? Is it the, uh, the subscription piece to the podcast? Or is it the, the performance enhancing drugs you sell, the podcast <laughs> advertisement? Is it the, the hair products? Because yeah. you're, you're a black box to a lot of people, I think, you, the minimalist, right? It's like because you, you're so independent, right? And you do things your own way. Sure. Um, so is that, the, is that the, for the aspiring media moguls out there, is that the secret? Is the, that direct support from your listeners who are the subscriber-only content?
1: I think the, the narrative overlay here is that we, you know, it's, what do they call it in business? Diversification, right? I mean, that's a fancy word for saying um, not, no one thing pays our bills. But, so yeah, I think we, we have a steady income from our private podcast. And, and that's great. It allows us to pay Sean and, and Jess, who manage our social media, Jordan, who does all of our filmmaking and our YouTube channel stuff. And so it allows us to pay them and, and also Ryan and I earn an income and pay for our studio space, et cetera. But yeah, we, we, we do speaking gigs. We sell books. We sell audio books. Oh, I teach a writing class uh, four times a year. And so there are, there are different things that, that we do in order to earn an income. And the nice thing about that is any of those things, I could walk away from one of them because I'm not, I'm not forced to be tethered to it. Because if all of a sudden, I'm like, "You know what, I hate teaching a writing class, not true. I actually really enjoy teaching a writing class, but I think one of the reasons I enjoy it is because I don't have to do it. It yeah. generates a nice amount of revenue, but that's I think we fool ourselves when we when we say that you know,, well, I don't let money make decisions for me I maybe mean, that's true, right um I don't. I don't want money to be the primary. I don't want the the money to be the driver in the car, but it's still going to be a passenger in the car. And we yeah. lie to ourselves because it's either one or the other. It's driving every decision we make, or no, 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 none of my decisions involve income whatsoever. Okay, well then you probably don't live within society, which is fine,
0: but uh, or you're lying to yourself. Yeah, you can. Kaczynski, yeah, you can, you can Ted Kaczynski it. I mean, uh, right. I don't. I don't think he had income. Um, but I like I mean, what I appreciate about, about what you do and, and I've written about this and try to model it is it's this lifestyle centric approach, right? What you do is you figure out, okay, at this stage of my life is sort of what is important to me in my, my life and what I want it to be like, okay, what's the financial picture that makes that possible? And then you're able to shape what you do around getting that picture, which is a very different, I would say a very different approach than how do I maximize the amount of, money I'm making off of the things I do, right? If, if you come at it, let me maximize the money I can possibly make and then let the lifestyle trail the earning. You yeah. yeah, ratchet. Yeah, you get the more, the more toilets than people. You get the three luxury cars. Things can spiral out of control. But I, you know, I wrote this post years ago when I was still a grad student for students, right? I said, here's what you should do. Think about what you want your life to be like first and then work backwards and mm. say, okay, how do I get there? Because for most people, that answer is not uh, the excerpts. Yeah. Or or 5,000 square foot. It's like, oh, I want to spend time outside and I want to, you know, whatever. I want to have a family and we make canoes or I want to write. And and it's a completely different thing. You're like, oh, great. So how do I have a diversified stream of incomes that uh, add up? It's why, for example, people like me or I have some other author friends in similar situations, it confuses people, non-author friends of ours. that when like a book goes well and we make some money, like I will put a lot of it into my house, like my mortgage. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, well, wait, you need to invest that or buy or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, because I'm thinking about I want to keep my my monthly nut as low as possible so that in the future when my books aren't selling that well, I can still write books. Right. And it's right. like a thing authors do a lot that confuse other people. It's like they're like, wait, you made this much money this year. Like, well, first of all, you need a bigger house and yeah. you need to vacation more and you need to get a better car. And it's time to ratchet up. And I know a lot of writers with the refugee mindset of like, no, I need to pay down expenses. I need to buy my house outright. I need to mm. make my life, use this to make my life as cheap as possible so that four books from now, when I really want to write this, I'm not making this much money. I can still write this and I'm going to be comfortable. Yeah. A lot. Of, it's foreign to a lot of people, but that's minimalism basically. It, it is. And it, it, it's, I, I would just say, what is enough? Right. And so we, we talked
1: about that briefly, but but rephrasing it that way i think we just don't think about like what is enough and so we when uh our income adjusts we sort of adjust our lifestyle it's like inflation but lifestyle inflation in a way where it's never enough right and it by the way it never will be right it, it's it you see it because you know before it was you know we talk about this in lesses now the uh, annie leonard's in there she's uh uh, director at, at Greenpeace, and, and she talks about the uh, v- vertical integra- vertical integration of our reference group. It used to be keeping up with the Joneses, but now you're keeping up with everyone on your your glowing screen. And yeah. and, and so... With, fake, with the fake version of their lives, the, the rented jet. Yes. And, and by the way, it, there's nothing... I'm not... I, I don't want to moralize any of this. Like, I don't think that it's wrong to have a private jet. I don't think it's wrong... To make a million dollars a year, I don't think that it's wrong to work eighty hours a, a week in in the corporate world. I, I think those things are inappropriate for me, and 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 but it also doesn't make me a better person because I I don't want those things or I've I've chosen not to pursue it. And, and so you know, there's a there's a big difference between wanting and and a deep desire in a thing. And so like yeah uh, if. if I would want a million dollars, or ten million, or a hundred million dollars to arrive in my bank account today. Would that be fine? Yeah, that'd be fine. But but yeah. but I don't have a deep desire to go out and and uh, make that
0: happen. Yeah, though uh, people people who are who work backwards from the lifestyle so that approach of like this is what I want or life values. I don't know the right terms, but they have a clear picture of enough. Like this is what I want. I want like this type of connection with friends. I want to live in this type of environment. I want to spend my time in these ways. When they do have unexpected paydays, they give a lot of money away. Yeah, because they literally because when you when you're working backwards from like okay I I I'm living in the place I want to live, surrounded by the people I want to be surrounded by, spending my time on the type of things I want to spend my time on, and then you know uh, the ten million dollars comes your way, and I've seen this for people who know enough. Like I literally don't know what to do with this. And they give a lot of it away or, 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 or whatever they, or they have these, you know, portfolios somewhere with stocks, they've thrown stuff. they like, I don't know what to do with this. There's just a lot of money in there. Um, I find that fascinating to, to see that I find that uh, aspirational. Like maybe there's well, a, there's an aphorism there. You want to have an approach to life. Whereas if someone gave you $10 million, you would be confused as to what to do with it.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I contribute a lot and, uh, I don't know. It's weird to talk about because it is, there's some part of it that is, I mean, I don't believe in true altruism. Like, of course, like I get something out of it. It makes me feel good to, to be able to contribute. You know, over the last decade, Ryan and I have done all kinds of stuff. We built an elementary school in Laos. We um, well, most recently we funded a nonprofit grocery co-op on the West side of Dayton because it's the second largest um, food desert in the country. And yeah, you know, there isn't a single grocery store to, to serve something like forty percent of the population of one of the largest cities in in the country. And so um, it's it's astonishing that it doesn't exist there. But it, it, so we we do things like that, but it doesn't. I don't think it's inherently good either. I don't think that makes me a better person than if I didn't do it. I, I I'm compelled to do it. I have a deep desire to to contribute beyond myself in a meaningful way, and. and Yet, I'm not prescribing that to anyone else. Uh, What I realized when I was climbing the corporate ladder throughout my 20s and up until about age 30, I made good money, but I barely contributed at all. The first year I walked away from the corporate world, I made $23,000, so about a 90% pay cut almost. And here's the strange thing about it. Because I had reduced my bills so much, I contributed more that year. Than I had any of the previous thirty years, contributed more monetarily, but also there are other ways other than check writing, right? You, that you can you know, work for Habitat for Humanity, which I've done quite a bit of work with, or different organizations, soup kitchens, etc. And and so there are ways for us to contribute, but. I think a lot of that has to do with like, what do I have the deep desire to do? And, and contribution is one of those things for me. It's not something that I can simply prescribe. I think some people, um, need to find what is the appropriate way for them to contribute because there's a, there's an aphorism there as well. Like the more that you give, the more that you grow, the more you grow, the more you have to give. But, but, um, you know, there's something about these platitudes that end up being true.
0: Yeah so let me, let me, let me get your counsel here. Um, get your, your advice. Uh, <laughs> so should I, should I move my podcast to a subscription model? Was saying my, my point being that I, I have ads because I, uh, I didn't want, the, I was thinking a subscription model means the entire thing mm-hmm. is just for subscribers. Right. And I was thinking, well, it's new. I, I, I want it to be accessible to a lot of people. Sure. Um, and I needed to pay it for the studio, but there's two a week idea where one so so you're still open to people there's a free episode and then a subscription what you're you're my business manager now what should yeah. what what should i do i'll take you seriously <laughs> you
1: know i um any advice that i give would be sort of putting myself up on a pedestal so i'll try to avoid that but i, ha- I don't have any advice i have some observations um the it has worked really well for us. I have seen it not work well for other people. I've seen it work way better for some people than others. In fact, I have some friends who have giant podcasts who have a, a, a Patreon version of their podcast as well. And they're wildly successful. In fact, they even run ads on their regular version and then it's ad free on the subscriber version. And um, you know, I, I think that that works well for a lot of folks i think there is probably a, a critical mass if i had to guess i'd say it's it's fewer than 10 percent of our audience um supports the podcast monetarily now what's the to, what's the cost uh it depends on what what tier you are it's two bucks an episode basically so two bucks a week yep. and and so you have you have other people who will spend more than that if they want the video version of the private podcast it's five bucks a week and you have this other tier of people that, uh, pay $8 a week, but then they also get all of our books and everything, uh, in the gratis. performance enhancing
0: drugs and the hair products. Yeah. And the, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. Everything we advertise. Um, and so I, I don't know whether or not that would work. Uh, and, and, and so I guess the question is like, what am I trying to accomplish out of this? Right. And, and for us, in order to pay for the filmmaking, the studio space, et cetera, we, it, I identified some non negotiables early on, like advertising non negotiable. I'd rather just not do the podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you had to wait, you had to wait until your subscription, like to switch the video, for example. You were, you were basically saying when the, when we make enough. Yeah. Off the subscriptions to support the video, we'll switch, we'll add the video. That's we'll, exactly we'll what just, happened. Yeah. Pay as we go. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you yeah, know, well, I guess the business
1: term is unique value proposition. Like what do people get from that? Like it, Are people clamoring for a second episode from you every week if so then then great then it might make sense from a a business perspective to do that but uh as you said far fewer people are going to see that i have i do another podcast with my wife it's uh it's called how to love and it's exclusively private there are no public episodes out there and as a result um far fewer people come to it but we do it as sort of like this fun little side project and by the way there are things that we wouldn't want to talk about in a broad public context so it's a few hundred people that listen to the podcast and they pay 10 bucks a month to hear two episodes a month and and you could talk about your jet on that episode is what you're saying yeah that's when you talk about the jet yeah (laughs) okay it's mostly sex toys but yes yeah
0: the the sex toys you keep on your jet is the the main (laughs) theme (laughs) the main theme of it (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um that works well for us, but we don't really have an expectation like if 12 people listen to it, I'd keep doing it just because it, we really enjoy doing it. I, I always would say like it felt like she and I recorded it's like we 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 had the best podcast episodes that we never recorded uh, throughout, you know, our entire relationship and it was like, "Hey, well, we could put a microphone in front of our faces and record some of these." And, and so we do that and still professional quality, but I don't have a particular expectation or need for it to, to go, I already have enough. And so, uh, anything else beyond this is it's gravy and, uh, it's fine. I don't have any debt at all and, uh, I won't have any debt. It's, it's a non-negotiable for me as well. Uh, and so I'm not beholden to, to needing to make more money as a result.
0: Yeah. Well, you, uh, you know, Dave Ramsey, right? You, you do a show sometimes that reminds me of that, the, the, uh, the no debt, a little better than I deserve. I need the chance to say that. Um, <laughs> yeah. all right. So let's live vicariously. So, so catching up to the, sort of the point of the, of the episode, um, you had the, your, your first Netflix documentary, you and Ryan mm-hmm. minimalism was very mm-hmm. popular and I'm sure it, it sort of put your public persona into like an even hot, high, even higher stratosphere. It's a world that everyone knows about in the sense that they all have Netflix, but no one knows how that world operates behind the scenes. So how did that, what is the backstory? It's a, it's a call. It's an email that arrives. What, uh, no, it's, it's what couple, does it look like to end couple, up as a very popular Netflix show?
1: Well, you know, I'm a DIY guy, right? And so, uh, we, we filmed that most of that documentary in 2014, the rest of it in 2015, we sort of need to fill in the gaps once we had the bone. And by the way, you know, talk about minimalism. We went on the road with Matt and we just, we literally had a zero dollar budget for the film. We spent money on post production, but in production itself, like we spent no money. We brought Matt, our talented director, on, by the way, who has blown up since that film came out. He has a beautiful, giant YouTube channel. And the, the size of the audience is great. But what is really, really great is his, what he basically puts together this little 10 minute documentary every week or every other week. And they are gorgeous. And, uh, he talks about a lot of the stuff that you talk about in terms of product, uh, productivity, et cetera. And anyway, we took him on the road in 2014 and we didn't know what to expect after that we said, Hey, we thought we would make this documentary. He had about a thousand hours worth of footage and it was just like, all right, good luck. And he came back with, with something that was workable and it, it sounded, it looked good, sounded good. And, and we figured out where the gaps were. We finished filming it and we said, all right, well, what do we do with this now? Uh, have we've already developed a, a sizable audience uh, enough to, we, we, at least can, we could put this up on YouTube if we wanted to, we didn't have a YouTube presence at the time. Uh, in fact, we, the reason we started our podcast initially was like, Hey, um, this will help us get the word out about the documentary. It actually ended up being the other way around the documentary helped get the word out about the podcast. Yep. Uh, and it was strange how, how, how we didn't anticipate that obviously. Right. And so. When we decided to release the film, we're like, okay, well, we will go to Netflix, see if they want it. They said no. You know, we went through an intermediary and Netflix said no. Okay, fair enough. I don't need anyone's permission to do anything. We said, you know, I'd like to do, I've never done this before. Let's do a theatrical release on our film. So we did 400 theaters, US, Canada, Australia.
0: I remember this tour. Yeah. Okay. So this was before you had no, you were the distributor. Yes. It was like you carrying the film like you were literally distributing the film in the sense that you had it with you as you brought it to the theater
1: yeah yeah so uh i forget what the technology is called but it's no longer yeah i guess it's electronic now but but yeah yeah. but no it, it is electronic but it's on this this thing you bring with you it's like a hard drive basically and um yeah we we did we so we did 15 live events so we did uh, simultaneously, we did 400 theaters across the U.S., Canada, Australia. We worked with a company called Gather. I don't know if they're still around. By the way, I wouldn't recommend doing this to anyone. I, I wouldn't do it again. We didn't do it with this film, the new film. But you know, I learned quite the lessons. One of the lessons you learn is the term Hollywood math is real. When everyone has their hand in the cookie jar, you realize like, oh, this film actually, it was the number one indie documentary of 2016, which sounds way more impressive than it actually is because when's the last time you went to it theater to see a documentary but it did have the largest opening of any indie doc in 2016 and that theatrical release um, then turned into well let's go back to to netflix we have uh, some proof of concept here they said no a second time and so we're like all right well we don't need anyone's permission let's go ahead and put this out on our own and so we released it we did a exclusive thing on vimeo i think for 60 days some 30 or 60 days with six hours of bonus footage. In fact, that, that six hours are still out there on on Vimeo. People could pay like 10 bucks for the six hours of additional interviews, et cetera, things that didn't make the film. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then we put it out on iTunes and Amazon and it did really, really well on iTunes in particular. And, uh, shot up to number one on iTunes because we had that established audience. And uh, that's when Netflix said yes. They, they, they came back through the intermediary and they worked out a, a deal with them uh through our agent basically and yeah. and then it yeah you know, it hit Netflix that December and oh my god i did not we had no i didn't anticipate anything and yeah you know, i'll get recognized in public from time to time before that came out but now it's you know a dozen times a day yeah. and and so that that changed in terms of recognizability it's it went much broader and then it brought a lot of people to our work. It brought people to the podcast. I think that first month we had something like 7 million people come to the podcast in a month. It was an obscene number of, of uh, downloads and new people showing up. And a, lot, a large swath of those people stuck around. And, um, and yeah, and so with this new film, though, we, had, we knew we wanted to actually spend some money in production. And so we went to Netflix beforehand and said, hey, hey here's, here's what we want to do. We actually tried to film it on our, on our own again. Yeah. Um back in twenty seventeen we went out and we did the Less is Now Tour. And we gave this talk and we basically we just wanted to do a, a sort of uh Brene Brown thing where you film a talk, it's an hour long thing and you put it up on Netflix and we did that. We we did a talk at, at the Wilbur Theater. But the Wilbur Theater is where Joe Rogan filmed his last special and it looked like a stand up comedy special without comedy it just, it didn't look right. Aesthetically, it wasn't right for us. And so we had to go back to the drawing board. Eventually we got Netflix involved. They gave us enough money to actually make a a beautiful piece of art. And, um, man, that took, we thought it was gonna take about four months. It took us four years to make it. And it's aggressively short. You know, we, we made it less than an hour long. It's 53 minutes, but we wanted every sort of line, every moment to, to be really
0: effective. Now, did you, uh, didn't you get disrupted? You, you, you hadn't quite finished filming when the pandemic started or were you in editing at that point? Both. So, so um, I remember you complained at the time talking, talking to you early in the pandemic, you were saying like, okay, everything's on production halt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we, we actually, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we had a, we had all the interviews that are in the film. So Dave Ramsey's in there. Um, uh, Annie Leonard, TK Coleman, uh, Dr. Dene Barahona. Erwin McManus and then we interviewed 30 everyday minimalists people who were profoundly affected by our first film but we had all of them scheduled for like a two-day period to come into LA and we were going to interview them in person and of course then the pandemic hit and we couldn't do it and so we had to sort of pause everything and then in a few months later we decided okay let's get these people in we got the experts back in film them in person and then those everyday minimalists, we sort of did the we, we we sent them cameras and we interviewed them over you know whatever medium it was facetime zoom whatever it was but we wanted to look more like a sort of youtube reaction video in a way where they were reacting to minimalism and so it it worked out really well it actually Surprisingly, made the film better because it took us into their homes and we got to see a few of those people sort of dealing with their stuff and the overwhelm of emotion. I don't think we would have gotten that in the bright lights, camera yeah. crew setting.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed. I noticed that with the yeah the at home, but so the extras. That's interesting. You had to do filming with them in person. I'm sure that was a pain, right? Because of, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, test was, it and, was test and distance and whatever. You have to wipe down the camera. I don't, I don't know. I'm sure it was a pain because there's probably uh, regulations and yes, there were fear protocols and, involved yeah. and masks
1: and and attenuated crews and all of these things. And yeah, we made sure that we we stuck to those different guidelines depending on the state we were in. We did have to travel for one. We went out to Nashville to interview um, Dave Ramsey at his. So that's why you were on
0: his show. So when you were on his show most recently, were you out there for because you were filming him?
1: Yeah, we've been on his show, I think, a couple times now. His daughter, who's amazing, Rachel Cruz, sure. um, She had us on her show, and then we ended up just going through the whole Ramsey Car Wash. We've actually become um, really good friends with a few people on their team. We did a whole tour with the Ramsey team back in twenty eighteen. So, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, we we called it the Money and Minimalism Tour, and we we went. It was all throughout the South, and so we had Anthony O'Neill and Chris Hogan, Rachel Cruz, and we've done stuff with Ken Coleman and. Uh, John Deloney. Chris
0: Hogan has the best voice in in podcasting
1: by far. Oh, my God.
0: It's not even fair. You could just be like, let me read the instruction manual for my (laughs) SM5B or whatever. (laughs) You'd be like, I love it. (laughs) Yeah, it's the best. That's great. That's great. So that's out. Now you have the book coming. Now you said summer? Yeah,
1: I think it's July 13th.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. All right. So then it just rolls. It just rolls, basically. And, And it's like one thing at a time that seems interesting and fits within, you know, whatever standards you have, whatever non-negotiables. And then you look up and say, what's next basically.
1: Yeah. And everything else needs to serve that, which means I say no to almost everything. I've gotten really, really good at saying no. In fact, I canceled this the first time because I had some health problems. Um, this, this interview, I, I was really looking forward to this and I think we for this film, we didn't do a whole bunch of press. We just said yes to the things that made the most sense. So GMA or Today Show or you know, Rich Roll's podcast. And and then Cal Newport was just like, hey, this would be a great conversation. I'm, I'm eager to have this conversation. I'd love to have this conversation with you, even if we didn't have these mics turned on. And so um, it... It makes sense sometimes just to to record these, but there are a handful of people where I have, just have great conversations and I, I and you're certainly one of one of those people and you know hopefully you can get back out here to Los Angeles so we can talk about i i can't wait to talk about uh the email book oh yeah yeah we got we got to
0: do that i' will I'll, I'll I feel like we'll be out there soon i don't we'll know we'll we'll, we'll figure it out we'll figure it out I have things on the books for the summer so that's mm. that's where i'm optimistic there's that's the first time when. People have, have at least tried to book events. So, so I'm optimistic, get a couple of vaccines in my arm, you know, uh, yeah. take some airborne jump on the plane. Let's rock and roll. I'm, I'm game by then. I think I'll be, I'll be punchy. Uh, well, this is good. So we, we've gone, we've gone pretty long and I want to respect your time, but, uh, this was great. And I, I am very looking forward to when we can, uh, we'll do this again. We'll do this in person soon just because, um, I need some sunshine. I need let's some early it. time. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, less is now uh, on Netflix. You're all watching Netflix anyways. So you have to watch it. The podcast is a must listen or must watch. And Joshua, thank you for your advice. Thank you for your stories. And until next time, um, I am going to go buy some more of your products. So (laughs) just get a 900 number, right? Where I can get advice from you on the phone for a dollar a minute while I order. (laughs) (laughs) All right. yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Josh.
1: Kyle, thank you. Appreciate you.
0: All right. Always a pleasure to talk with Joshua. I will be back on Thursday with a Habit Tune Up mini episode. And until then, go buy A World Without Email. And while you read it, you can stay deep.